This is an ABC podcast. Unfortunately, the Thunder River Rapids ride, uh, which was a water ride at Dreamworld, broke down and the raft flipped over and four uh, members of the public died. The ride had a 30-year trouble-free, they felt trouble-free record. The thing is, seeing holes and deficiencies in hindsight is not going to explain why particular actions and behaviours existed that way over time and then were rationalised as normal. For example, not conducting risk assessments or relying on unqualified personnel as in Dreamworld. And hindsight's not going to help people predict or prevent other organisations from drifting into failure. That's Samantha McGolrick. She's a professional health and safety consultant who works with boardrooms to help them understand their role in influencing the culture of their organisations. Can it be done? Or is it mission impossible or one that needs generational change? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and you're listening to This Working Life. So Samantha, what are the main lessons from the Dreamworld tragedy? Well, I think one of the key lessons is for boards to not measure success by the absence of failure. For example, the absence of injuries and illnesses. So boards need to know that organizations like Dreamworld are not dissimilar to their organization. And it's easy to look at things in hindsight and think that things were really clear. And people want to kind of dissociate themselves from that failure. But things that happen at Dreamworld are very similar to things that are happening in many organizations. Our measure of success or our measure of well is part of the problem. Then how do we get over that? Because boards really only see what they're presented in a way in terms of the papers, for example. That's true. Yeah. Um, There are lots of things that we need board members to do uh, in terms of making or impacting the culture of the organisation. There are many board members looking now to broaden how the organisation can create value. And from my experience, there's often a deeper purpose at heart from those who sit on boards or those looking to be on a board. It comes down to how, in some shape or form, board members want to have influence and make a positive impact. And board members who want to build that meaningful legacy will be more proactive in helping organizations make that much bigger positive impact. And they'll need to think more holistically in terms of their influence. So in terms of making that positive impact, do boards actually have the power to do that? That's a great question and one I think many board members will struggle or do struggle with. But boards are already influencing outcomes. Arguably, um, we're not doing it overly well or perhaps not fast enough. Organizations, by virtue of their leadership teams, um, have created a lot of what we call social pollution over the years, over decades, really. So social pollution is that adverse impact that work or organizations have on our personal lives and how that impacts on society because we can't separate work from our personal lives, right? That's part of being human. Mm. So when we're not doing well at work or we don't feel valued and cared for, then we're not doing well at home. Then we have less discretionary energy to contribute to our community and our society. So in answer to your question, we can't ignore the role that boards you know, can and already are playing in these outcomes because to do so is to see board decisions and those members' behaviour in isolation to the structures and systems in the organisation that create these outcomes, and that's that climate piece. The board sets the tone and the priorities and members are in a position to support and challenge the executive's way of thinking or their paradigms. And this has to include discussion around how can we improve people's lives through the workplace, not just mitigate risk, 
but create spaces where people leave the workplace in a better condition than when they arrived. How do boards create value and make that positive change that you're talking about? I think the challenge is really a lack of available training. I'm going to start there for board members in systemic change and I'd say contemporary mental health, well-being and safety principles that's really tailored to their influence and their governance responsibilities. And that's why I created Lead with Heart in the boardroom. But because I could not find one national director institute that tackles these matters. So it's understandable that there's many board members that are governing with these out-of-date mental models and a lack of awareness of where they have the greatest influence to drive positive outcomes. So the power that the board has to cultivate positive outcomes is really about recognizing where they have the most influence. And often recommendations for boards um, and their influence are on policies and monitoring. They're at a policy and monitoring level. But when it comes to safety, for example, it's not about ensuring that training is taking place or that people have personal protective equipment. These are important and they should be monitored, but the board has a lot more leverage to create systemic change through targets, goals, and incentives they create or endorse or advocate for. I mean, for example, if leadership at Dreamworld were rewarded based on ride uptime or maintenance downtime or the number of people through the door, then it's natural that more time is going to be given to keeping the park open, more time will be put to ensuring that rides are up and operational, which will probably impact on maintenance being deferred, which it was, and the more time people are needed on the ground to operate the park, and all of this will create less time for people to undergo such things as training. But when directors mandate that training should take place and then compromise this with other governance decisions, and this is often the disconnect, which is when they're not seeing the interconnectedness between their corporate governance and well-being, health and safety outcomes, it just makes people more frustrated because those more systemic issues are not addressed. And they will end up trading off things like training for other targets that they're measured against or rewarded on. Let's talk now about the relationship between the board and the executive. What happens if the board is too close or the opposite, doesn't get on with the executive Yeah, boards are, I think, generally quite sensitive to that delicate balance between keeping an arm's length from management and then then knowing when to get more involved because there's a need to do so. You know, there's maybe a genuine concern that threatens the viability or the integrity of the organization. But I'd say because of the social pollution that I mentioned earlier and society's expectations of boards, I I believe there's no better time for boards to lead the discussions around mental health, well-being and safety. But they need to do so with that appropriate foundational knowledge to ask better questions so that they support their executive and not make their lives more difficult, which is often a frustration from executives that boards want more and more. But boards often ask me, like, are we compliant or do we have a safety culture? And they want to know what they need to fix in the safety management system to get there, but this is often not recognizing how their other governance decisions, like targets and incentives, are interconnected with those outcomes. Now, Samantha, you believe that boards need to be given training to ask the right questions. So what are the right questions? I think the questions are really link are centered more around how they think, because this is where you have the greatest leverage to influence outcomes. So how you think determines what you do, what you value, what you endorse or advocate for, and what you put your attention to. So one of the bigger questions I'd like board members to ask themselves is, do I see success as the absence of failure? Because statistically speaking, we experience failure once out of every 10,000 events. 
So it makes more sense to put the bulk of our resources into understanding how things go right in the organization or where do things go well, rather than focusing our resources on on understanding just how things went wrong when we fail. And to do that, then you want to ask yourself, are we making it as easy as possible for people to do their job the right way? Because the right way will inevitably be the safest and healthiest way. And where does the board influence that? That's health and safety consultant, Samantha McGolrick. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and we're looking at the willingness of boardrooms to influence cultural change in organisations. Deborah Corum is the CEO of SafeTrack, which helps companies navigate their compliance requirements. So, Deborah, what's been your experience with boards and culture? The experience that we see at SafeTrack is a very twofold approach. We've got organisations who approach compliance proactively and those who approach it reactively. Mm. We see their organisations approaching it proactively as ones where they're embedding that compliance as part of their culture. It's part of how they operate their business. And the ones who are doing it reactively are those that have had failure and are trying to implement systems to address that failure. And when you are approaching it from that place, you're not necessarily looking at it as a holistic solution and a means for moving the needle in terms of the way that your organisation operates, but rather you're looking to do it to checkbox. What are the issues then with the checkbox or reactive approach? Yes, so the checkbox approach involves organisations doing the minimal or doing something in order to show that they've done it. So, hello, Mr Regulator, we've done our compliance training, aren't we good? Uh, Unfortunately, that approach usually leads to inadequate training, training that's poorly thought out. It's not based on roles. It's not based on the organisation. It's based on a generic off-the-shelf course, which doesn't address the intricacies of the organisation involved, and it doesn't involve looking at people's roles and how that training impacts the roles and how they execute their own duties. And if we do that, what we do is we miss the opportunity to actually take that time that we're training our staff in actually making a difference to the way that they behave. And it's also associated with a pass approach. Oh, I passed the training, I'm done, I'm all good. Now, we see some organisations set a pass mark at 70 or 80% and others have set it at 100%. And I ask, if you're setting your pass mark at 70 or 80%, that means that you didn't know 20 to 30% of the content. So you're saying that that's acceptable. How is that a pass? And they're the sort of results that we pass to boards on a pretty regular basis. You know, 80% of our, of our staff have passed their course with an 80% pass mark. And the board goes, oh, that's very good. We're meeting our compliance training obligations. So what's actually um, missing here? Because for me, it sounds like there's something around mindset. It's actually the tone from the top is where it comes from. So if I'm on a board and I'm looking at what our obligations are as directors, we need to ensure that our company is compliant with the laws as a minimum standard. So what are the laws that our organisation needs to be compliant with and how are we going to go about that? Now, obviously, training is one of those. So if we start from that metric, I'm a director, I care about whether it's our health and safety, our privacy, our compliance with 
consumer protection, the anti-competitive behaviour, all these different sorts of laws that apply to our organisation. I care as a board about these issues. How are we going to address these? We need to ensure we do this well. We need to ensure that our staff actually understand these things and they comply with it and that we can evaluate areas where people don't understand so that we can address further training in those areas. Then we start to have the right culture in terms of how we're rolling out that training. We're setting the tone from the top and we're leading it down right through the bottom of the organisation. Unfortunately, it's often middle management that come to us and say, oh, yeah, we've had an incident. We need to train this group of people on health and safety. It's in response to something that's happened. Well, that's not going to train staff because that just means that group of people are going to get training on that. You're not actually looking at this as an organisational-wide investment in ensuring that we all do the right thing. And do you think that managers and executives are likely to accept that type of approach from the board? Well, I think that boards, as a result of the Financial Services uh, Royal Commission, have it's been made very clear to them that they do need to set the tone for culture and they do need to be invested in culture. So I think organisations need to understand that that's a reasonable demand of a board to be invested in that. And do you believe boards understand that that's their role? Very few in our experience. I'd say there's an increasing uh, uptake in it. We work with a lot of financial services organisations and I think as a result of the Financial Services Royal Commission, there's been a significant uptake in the importance and the prioritisation of compliance across organisations. I mean, we tie compliance very tightly to ESG-type issues and if we look at the focus on ESG across our organisations in Australia, there's definitely an increasing focus on the types of issues that affect compliance. And for people who don't know what ESG is, it's environmental, social and governance criteria. How readily have boards accepted these ESG criteria as a set of standards, do you think, in your experience, Deborah? Well, I think we're seeing in the top organisations, there's, very, and the, you know, we're looking at our ASX listed corporations, you're now sort of looking at 70% of organisations having a sustainability strategy. But then we can also look at what organisations don't have, and we can say that 76% of them don't have a reconciliation plan. So I think that we're growing in terms of our commitment to reporting upon these issues. But we've still got. of the ASX 2000, they don't disclose information on the negative impacts they have on their value chain. So we're still looking at things from a positive point of view. We do this well. This is what we're doing well. They're not reporting on what they're not doing well. And I think until we move to that environment, boards going, well, what do we need to improve? And a great example of that is diversity. Oh, look at our sex diversity in terms of our male to female ratios and we report on that factor quite readily because we are getting better at that but we don't do well at reporting on racial diversity. These are the factors that I think that are going to grow over the coming years as shareholders start to insist that organisations don't just return short-term shareholder profit but are looking at long-term shareholder value and ensuring that they have a social licence to operate by ensuring that all of these sort of ESG-type issues are adequately addressed. Now, you say that organisations should change their mindset and replace the term compliance with integrity. What do you mean by that and what would that achieve? 
For many years, we've talked about compliance and compliance training, and often people grit their teeth and screw their eyes up and say, do I have to do that? <laughs> and, and that's because, A, compliance training has been really boring, uh, B, it's been completely irrelevant, and it's not been integrated with a role or with that organisation. It's been done with that checkerbox approach. When we look at organisations who adapt to taking compliance and the law as part of the way they operate and is fundamental to the way that they operate their businesses, we see it not being compliant and being a have-to-have and a box-checking exercise to being one that allows them to operate with integrity. So we work a lot over the years with Air New Zealand and they have a mandate of changing the area of compliance training to terming it integrity training. So you must do your integrity training. And I think just that very small shift in the terminology that you use for something means, okay, this isn't a boring, terrible thing to do. This is actually about the way we operate. This is about how we conduct ourselves. This is about the organisation we want to be. It makes it more aspirational and inspirational than, oh, something that I have to do. And I think that makes a really big difference just in how we present this to our staff and our organisations and to our boards in terms of this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. And then with that example of Air New Zealand, can we track it back a bit? What led them to call that training integrity training? Well, I think they have a board and have had for a long time where they have legal and risk reporting to the board uh, directly, and that's been operational for a very long time. A lot of organisations, frighteningly, haven't necessarily had a seat at the table for someone in risk compliance, and rather that's been something sort of relegated to the depths of the organisation we're increasingly seeing that board entrant of managerial capacity reporting directly to the board and having a very key stake in that board. And we're also starting to see much greater risk committees starting to be formed around organisational risk where board directors are sitting on that board and actually better understanding the operational risks in that organisation. And we're starting to look at risks as proactively and retrospectively. So, yes, things have happened in the past that may or may not be predictive of actions in the future, but also what hasn't happened in the past and what could happen and how we're going to plan for those. So, we are seeing a change in risk culture in a lot of organisations and starting to change that framework. And that's simply because of the onslaught of issues organisations have had in recent years that have led them to the front page of the paper for all the wrong reasons and have given them such negative brand value that boards have no choice other than to ensure these issues are front and centre of their decision-making. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and today we're exploring how boardrooms can better influence organisations' culture. My guests are Samantha McGolrick and Deborah Corum. Samantha... What do you think about Deborah's comments? Well, I think one thing that stood out to me was uh, the language. She was mentioning that it's the language boards use, the language of integrity versus compliance. I love that because language is powerful in shaping behavior and the language and tone of board members, how they view things, all shapes behavior. And it's part of the reason why we look at now um, reframing the language around avoiding to creating. For instance, you know, with um, safety, beyond zero harm. We're not looking to just 
meet zero, we're looking to improve people's lives, create resilience and resilient organizations. So changing language is really important. And is it just language or do you think there is something about mindset and uh, values? Oh, yeah. You know I do. I think you know, the mental models of board members, um, that's the training that needs to be more implemented and more available for and more board members to seek out that, to challenge their own assumptions. Our mindset determines what we look at, the information we put attention to, what we ignore. And actually, there's a something called the reflexive loop where basically we will rely on past success that we had from our decisions as a means of determining future success. And that then will determine the information we even look at. Deborah? I think the, the mindset and the tone, we're talking about, we're setting the culture of the organisation. We're talking about the tone at the top, setting the mood in the middle, which creates the buzz at the bottom. So I think the way in which we go about implementing our approach to these issues, which comes directly from our board, is absolutely integral to how they're adopted across our organisation and how we expect our organisations to perform. We train many, many organisations on a vast range of topics and we very rarely train directors. Now, I find that fact just incredible. Every director in Australia needs to really understand every legal obligation that they have that affects their organisation. And to have that duty of care, they really need to understand the matrix of laws that apply to them and their organisations in order for them to adequately discharge that duty. Let's talk about silos now. Samantha, what part do silos play in terms of disconnect between departments, executives and boards? I think thinking in silo or seeing decisions that we make as separate from outcomes that are not necessarily easily connected is really just uh, an absence of systems thinking. And I think that's a big gap in our knowledge in boardrooms. And it can definitely lead an organization to drift into failure like Dreamworld. Because when departments aren't communicating with each other or sharing information, or when we see our decisions as disconnected from what happens in other departments, then we're not really looking at the organization holistically and we, we get caught off guard like Dreamworld uh, senior leaders did when something happens. So seeing our organization, it's, it's similar to what I mentioned earlier about seeing our, our organization as disconnected from its environment. Everything is interconnected. And our job is to look for those relationships so that we understand as best as possible how our decisions impact um, other areas and other departments. And Deborah? Lisa, to that point, I think what's essential here is that organisations start to see that compliance is actually the lifeblood that runs throughout an entire organisation that is not just a box check, but rather than something that can connect all of the silos within our organisation. Because compliance and the laws run across every single division, it's actually that central action by looking through and investigating each department and how these laws have a framework that affect each silo and how they are connected. So by going through that process and properly analysing that, Compliance is actually what connects our organisation and gives us the ability to operate functionally as a cohesive unit. And when we look at it more holistically and the organisations that do it well, you will see compliance being the connector for all of those silos. And how hopeful are you that boards can do this? 
I'm hopeful that we're moving in the right direction and I am hopeful that the shareholders that we have in our businesses are increasingly putting pressure on their boards to ensure that they do have a social license to operate, whether that's in relation to how they treat their staff, how they employ their staff, who their supply chains that they engage with, the manner in which they monitor the things like money laundering and how proactive they are in looking at these issues. Shareholders are not so invested in that short-term shareholder profit anymore. And we are going to increasingly expect reporting to be branching into these more sort of ESG social license issues. And organisations that do not keep up are simply going to fall behind and shareholders will vote with their feet. That's Deborah Corum, CEO of SafeTrack and Workplace Health and Safety Educator, Samantha McGoldrick. I'm Lisa Leong. You've been listening to This Working Life. And until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.